0: 17 I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 128 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You alright? You guys hanging in? It's August 28th, and this is episode 128. It's a good one today. Today on the show, um, truly, 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 truly one of my favorite musicians around. A musician who um, I've known, you know, uh, not so well, but for a long time. A musician whose music has uh, been with me for, for a good 10 plus years, and it's some of my favorite music. Today on the show, Sam Amadon. That's who you hear back there. Let's have a listen. Sam Amadon, and um, I'm really happy with today's episode. Before we get into that, uh, let's talk about a couple of things. First off, I want to remind you of some stuff that I have coming up. September 23rd in New Haven, Connecticut at Firehouse 12, I will be presenting my piece for four clarinets, Sistema Mundi Totius. If you guys are in and around the area, come out. Um, I really love Firehouse 12 a lot. It's a really great place to play music in, and it's a really great space in which to listen to music. Uh, it's, it's very intimate. The sound is great. The place is architecturally beautiful, and they have a really, really solid bar. They've got a lot of good beers on tap. Um, Firehouse 12, September 23rd. Sistema Munditotius, my new clarinet quartet. If you're around, come out. I also want to say thank you uh, to the people that have written to me. I hear from you guys, and I like it. Um, it. It means a lot to me. I pretty much almost never write back, uh, primarily because I can barely keep my shoes tied. But but just know that if if you write a note to me, I get it, I read it, and it it, it does mean a lot to me. Thank you guys. Today on the show is um, you know I, I said it a second ago. It's Sam Amidon. Now. I imagine some of you are familiar with Sam. Uh, I imagine some of you listening to this are probably listening to this podcast for the first time because you're a fan of Sam. Sam is well, first things first, his music, the records that he has put out, um, are, are records, contemporary records, records that have been released in the last 10 years that I come back to with, you know a, a notable frequency. All of his records from the last several years have uh, been kind of based around some some very unique very specific to Sam interpretations of folk songs. Uh, his records have you know one thing that I've really really um, been compelled by with his records is th- they're they're a full picture from Sam's vocal phrasings to you know the production of the records to the you know the the orchestral flourishes that come and go um they're really unique and and to me they really present you know a true and thoughtful synthesis of a lot of different influence sam grew up in vermont in a family that that you know plays folk music and 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 takes the the practice of folk music very seriously and sam's been an astute listener since a very young age And I first became aware of Sam. We talked about this for a minute on the show today. Um, It was like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, Avin Kang had booked the Stone. And through my friend Matt Welch, who was working the door there, I heard about this performance by some young guy with a violin and and a tape recorder who was doing these strange dances and, and recording the performance and playing it back and going outside the Stone and coming back in. And it just sounded like a really strange and unique thing. And... Somehow I became familiar with his stuff and I was just drawn to it immediately. I, I really, some, there's something about it that just speaks to me very instantly. And I love Sam. I love talking to him. Like I said a second ago, you know, we don't know each other super well, but um, I just, I, I from the moment I met him, from the moment I heard his stuff, I've really felt drawn to Sam. I think he's a great guy. And early on in this podcast back in 2013 uh he was one of the first people i think that i, I reached out to and said hey if you're ever around um, i'd love to talk to you and at that point he had left new york i wasn't quite sure where he was living at the time he was living in los angeles and i was in la i made the drive to where he was living at the time out in laurel canyon which is probably the most beautiful part of los angeles and we did the interview um and it was a disaster. We tried sitting in, uh, outside to do it, and the wind was blowing on the mics. We tried sitting inside, and his son, who at the time had just learned to walk and uh, I think had just learned to say a few words, was really all over the place. For about 45 minutes, we tried to do the interview, and it, it became very clear that it wasn't going to work. It was one of the few interviews that um, I have done for this podcast that was not able to be used for whatever reason and i always regretted it um and sam and i got in touch i don't know a couple months ago i realized he was going to be in new york he was here for literally like 28 hours he was doing a gig and a recording and uh we made the time to do this this podcast i think is the earliest interview i've ever done this was like 9:30 in the morning or 10 in the morning and and sam came over just before a session in brooklyn Um, And I just want to say it again, you know, if you're not already familiar with Sam, I I can tell you this is some of my favorite music. It's great music for, you know, sitting out on the porch on a summer evening. It's great music for, for everything. I, I I just, I really cannot, you know, say enough about this music that to, to demonstrate how much I love it. And if you're curious about Sam, you know, he tours a lot and, and he's out there a lot. You know, he, he takes his work very seriously. And you want to find out more about Sam, go to samamidon.com. S A M A M I D O N.com. Um, check him out. A lot of great records, a lot of good tours. You know, he's, he's out there. Samamidon.com. If you want to um, check out some past episodes of the 5049 podcast, go to 5049records.com. I think at this point they were all there, about 130 of them. A lot of conversations. And if you are enjoying the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. Subscribe to it. Um, that's a good way to help. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Sam Amidon. Right, really? Yeah, I've never heard of some kind of like some of the best shit there is. I mean he's like he's one of those guys that for years people are always like oh you must be really into John Carter yes and, and like, yeah it wasn't that I wasn't into him I just it didn't really know his shit but now that I'm there I'm like really there and um but it was
1: wonderful because I was in London and I don't know if I was home alone for a few weeks or but I was kind of just like I'm, I mean I had my dudes but I was just sort of hanging around and um and I um yeah I can give you a test drink water yes and uh And I, and it was listening to you guys chat. I just like, oh yeah, I'm seeing my buddies again. It was like, (laughs) I had it on my headphones while I was washing the dishes. Really? Yeah.
0: I've had people say that to me. Like either, you know, people who, musicians who lived in New York for a while for a time and then left. Um, It's like, oh, I get to catch up with my friends or people are like, you know, like I actually feel like, you know, I I get to be there for
1: it. Exactly. It was really Cozy.
0: Where did you meet Ericsson? I feel like. There was, I heard, I've heard Matt Bowder.
1: It was, you can press record if you we're want, because it's, re- oh, we're, ro- we're rolling. We're okay, rolling. great. Yeah. Then I'll then I won't hold back. <clears throat> but I will drink some tea. I, I heard stories about you. So the, the crucial people, uh, or two crucial people who led me to Aaron Siegel and led me to many, many other things uh-huh. are, uh, Zach, Wallace, the Jacob. yes, that's right, Uh and the elusive Zach Wallace, and Jacob Danziger, who is even more elusive, because he, nope, they're both from Ann Arbor, and Jacob is no longer a professional musician, I hope he still plays music though, because he's a wonderful musician, he's he's a lawyer in uh, in Ann Arbor again, Mm. Um, he was a violin player, and they played in the band Flash Paper with uh-huh. Fred Thomas. Uh-huh. And then they also played in the band Ida, wonderful indie rock band, beautiful band. Um, and they, and then Zach also played on a low record. Uh-huh. And Jake was doing solo. He went to Mills and was doing solo electronic, mm-hmm. electroacoustic composition and playing violin loops and stuff. So the story, what happened is that um, I, in Brattleboro, as a teenager, the local CD store... Carried, Free Jazz Records, Sun Ra. Well, it's, it's, it depends on how far
0: you want well, to rewind. Let's go back, because I know that... So the last time okay. I saw you was in Los Angeles. Yes. In Laurel Canyon, Yes. which was at a very Wonderfully chaotic moment, yeah. yes. Uh, but you grew up, like, like music was like the family... In Brattleboro, Vermont. Right, which yeah, is folk a very music. specific place.
1: Folk music. Yeah. And because you'll know some of the people I'll name in this... Yeah. So... Um, my parents are; they were like you know hippies who were part of bread and puppet theater, uh-huh. and they met in Cambridge as part of the folk music scene in the seventies. And they that was their whole thing, and and it was all about their their folk music is not the version of folk music of like dudes strumming guitar or a song circle of people all swapping songs and strumming guitars yeah. around the campfire. Their folk music was all the community forms of folk music, you know, dance, folk dance, fiddle tunes, or everybody sitting around playing tunes together group, you know, harmony, folk harmony singing, yeah. like Balkan Village singing, or, you know, all the forms of folk music that are not about a performer or an audience, but were about a group of people making music together. That's their whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but, my dad had been a composition major, and so, like, and he knew enough, like, he knew, he gave me Bitches Brew when I was 13, so I didn't know what to make of it, but, you know, he was into that. Okay, but that. But not that much other stuff. <clears throat> but there was something that happened when I was very little, and, um, and uh which is that he took there was do you know who David Moss is?
0: Yeah, I do.
1: He was a percussionist and composer and made up languages and right. and he was very much part of the downtown scene in the late seventies yeah, and he recorded and, with, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, with John Zorn and with um Bill Dixon. He's on recordings with Bill Dixon. And he moved to Marlborough, Vermont, which is just a few miles west of Brattleboro. And he gave a concert at Marlborough College. He lived in Vermont for a while. And he gave a concert at Marlborough College that, you know, was it like late at night? And for some, by coincidence, my dad brought me, uh, who was seven, and my little brother, Stefan, who was four, to this gig. And Ed Bartlett brought his son, Thomas Bartlett, who was seven also, Dope to this man, gig.
0: Yeah, as he's also So known.
1: that was one of the first times Thomas and I met, was at a David Moss concert. At age with seven. <laughs> John Rose on violin. <laughs>
0: Because John Rose is also kind of you
1: know super out there, yeah, and and, and um, he seems uh, and and John Rose, Gene, <clears throat> and David Moss, and a bass player named Gene Chain, who was a wonderful local bassist uh-huh. and, and had also lived in New York, and um, the concert totally blew all of our minds, you, it, and it was the like best thing for a child to see because it was like super crazy, blistering downtown, you know, composition improv. But also, like, he would, like, swing these, you know, noisemakers that make the woo -woo,
0: Uh uh
1: And he would sing all this gibberish, like, languages he invented. are All these gibberish languages. So it was incredibly accessible to a small child because it was just patently, like, super all over the place. And we bought the record, the vinyl record, the David Moss Dense Band Live in Europe, which on the record is Fred Frith and Wayne Horvitz and David Moss and... Maybe that's a trio. Maybe John Rose also. And, um, and the record has this it's like this weird it's a clear vinyl I've never seen anybody do this ever since maybe you've seen it it's like this clear vinyl and it has it's like gra- grained and fi- grained in this way that when it spins it looks like it's like it's incredibly psychedelic like it weird. looks like it's spinning the other way yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it, again like seven year old mind was blown like another time which right because
0: you could see all these possibilities of what you can actually do yeah and, and we listened level. to
1: the record all the time we thought it was hilarious we didn't know we had no context for it right it was literally the only album of that kind in our house other it was not like uh, you know, old time string band. <laughs> have music. you listened to it recently,
0: um, or in the past? You know, in in your adult life as a as a music maker,
1: I have gone back. I got to find the vinyl. I hope it's at my parents' house. I've gone back because some of it's on YouTube. You can find it if you look up the David Moss Dance Band. It's cool. It's really cool. It's beautiful music, and it, you know, you can hear. I can now hear it in connection to like Naked City, which sure. shared band members, and you know, all these things. But at the time, it was just like literally music from outer space came to oh, our yeah, house.
0: but growing up because. You grew up playing folk music. I mean, playing folk music, but also as something that you do with your family. So it's a creative thing, it's a social yeah, thing. Yeah, it was it's life. A, it was life. I mean, yeah.
1: I, I, and, and, um, and, and, there were sort of two sides of it, which was, <clears throat> one side was just like the osmosis background thing, which was just like, it was what they were into. Yeah. They didn't pressure us to be part of it, but it was, you were, it was immersion. You know I uh-huh. mean? All of their friends were folk musicians. All of the, you know, my, you know, my kids, my friends, not all, many of my friends were at school, just normal kids, but I had, I had many friends who were, you know, kids did you go from to that world. School? Both. Yeah. I did all right. forms, homeschooling, public schools, private school, everything, everything. I tried it all. And, um, <laughs> Um, and, uh, but I started it with public school and, and they, yeah. And so, you know, there was just like, we'd go to the folk dance, we'd go to the, you know, the shape notes thing would happen once a month uh, at my parents' house or somebody else's house. That was around. It wasn't necessarily something that I thought about consciously, but it was there in the background. And And then when I was three, I started taking violin lessons and starting around age six, I started really getting into fiddle tunes mm-hmm. fiddle tunes mm-hmm. and i had a little there was like a kid's band with with thomas my friend thomas was part was part of what was he playing on first acoustic guitar little known fact about thomas when he was five years old he would jump on top of the sofa and sing la bamba and strum the chord to the top of his lungs. because
0: that movie must have just come out with <laughs> exactly. diamond phillips yeah exactly right.
1: you got it with yeah. los lobos doing the song yeah, yeah, yeah. and um but then he switched to piano and he played accordion or piano in the folk band and there were other kids from our little town that played in this band Fuck. and i was seven starting er, seven eight nine ten And um, so my own personal thing was fiddle. Like I, I sang with my parents just as something that you would do as part of your life. But really for me, it was about fiddle and, and it wasn't even about American folk music, even though again, that was in the background. It was Irish fiddle tunes because, there's a New England fiddler style, which is great, and many of my early heroes were New England fiddlers. What's who an example of it? it? Well, basically, it's, it, what I realized is it's basically an intersection of French-Canadian, Irish, and sort of Appalachian influences. Right. So, so it's, it is a style unto itself. There's a fiddler named Rodney Miller, who was a great practitioner of this style. Uh-huh. There's many people from around my town, uh, Becky Tracy, Sue Sternberg, these great fiddlers who played the local folk dances. And they played
0: actually across the country playing these kind of dances. It's called Contra-dancing. I know go to, about that. You've gotten to a contra
1: dance. You're from upstate New York. You know about contra
0: dance. no, but uh, there's a. I live. I kind of grew up between upstate New York and the South. And there's a, a place in North Carolina that my mom would take us to. Asheville. Called, in Asheville. Not in Asheville. It's the John C. Campbell Folk School. Oh, totally. Yeah. Have you been there? No, but I know. I know of that stuff. But I. I we would go to the folk school, and there, I think there was contra dancing. There was definitely, definitely yeah. like the music was very foreign to me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so
1: contra dance <laughs> that was like so much of my own musical stuff is in connection uh, growing up is all would be connection with thomas so we we had this kids band and then we formed our own band of just thomas and i and my little brother Stefan, and who played percussion at age 13 and we made our first cassette then popcorn behavior was the Uh name of this band (laughs) which you can look up there's one video on youtube of popcorn (laughs) behavior local public access uh, access tv show and um and it was New England fiddle music. So what it meant was it was basically Irish tunes but played with a bit more swing with the influence of okay. Appalachian rhythms and French-Canadian, which is a bit more bouncy. And, and like your
0: brother's playing drums?
1: Playing percussion. Like okay. hand percussion. Okay. And later drums. And um, and so I... And for me, I didn't even like American folk. I didn't... I wouldn't... I mean, I sang the folk songs with my parents, but I didn't like Appalachian, like the, what we think of as, you know, because to me... You know, the Irish stuff was. I was so obsessed with this Irish fiddle style, which is very ornate and uh, it's very delicate phrasing. It's v- deeply rhythmic, but it's very. It's a very finely tuned style of fiddle playing. Yeah, and and to me, when I listened to the old time music, which is like the Appalachian stuff, it just sounded so rough. And I was like, these guys can't play. It's just scratchy fiddle playing. This is boring. I want to listen to these Irish fiddle players. Because it's a more also, focused sound. Yeah, and also, and this is actually important. <clears throat> the Irish tunes, what's cool about Irish music is it's the opposite of jazz, where in jazz you have, or traditional jazz, you have set chords, right? right? And then they play a melody and people make up melodies over these set chords. In Irish tunes, in the traditional Irish music, the melody is set. And you you maybe, you maybe play ornaments, but you would never like stray that far from it. Uh-huh. But the melody was written before they had any chordal instrument in Ireland. So there's no set chords to the melodies. And they're often very ambiguous Mysterious melodies. And so you can, so the guitarist or the pianist, whoever's playing the chordal instrument in an Irish session, can make up, like makes up all the harmony the whole time. It
0: seems like that could result either in some very predictable music or some very. (laughs) No, it's well. It music. depends
1: on who you are and where you are, but yeah, it's it's never that crazy. But you know, there's certain there's only a few options at any given time. But there are you know the melodies are very beautiful and very open, right? So they're very it's very modal, right? It's very open. It's not functional harmony of like, but you can add that or not. So the guitarist has a huge amount of freedom to you know compose these you know harmonic like progressions and but also so for me again when I heard the old time music in old time music the melody is just one four five. You Know very basic, like the yeah, chords yeah. are literally just one four five, and the melodies are a lot weirder. A lot of these Appalachian fiddle melodies are very strange. It's weird music, but, but if you have a guitar in the traditional style, you would never follow those, you would never listen for those harmonies. You just stick to the nearest one four five, and if the fiddle is doing something weird, that's just how it goes. Whereas in Irish music. The, the the accompanist follows the mystery of these melodies and in an irish session you could have 15 people all playing different melody instruments fiddles uh, you know pipes flute but you could only ever have one guitarist it would be mayhem if you had two because they'd be making up different harmonies right so so for me the irish music was all about the modal mysterious modal harmonies which i still love and which i think come out in my own music and and then the ornateness of this fiddle style which and, you know, and ornamentation, and the beautiful, and just deep, deep mi- mysteries of phrasing. So, for example, a fundamental musical mind-blowing moment for me was: there's a fiddler named Tommy Peoples. Very intense, wonderful fiddle player, still alive. And um, there's an album of his from the mid '70s, and I bought this record. Somebody said you have to listen to Tommy Peoples, and I bought the CD and put it on. And it was one of those, you know, life-changing moments. And there's a track on this album of his, and the tune is called "Kid on the Mountain," and 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 it's a it's a jig, but and the guitarist plays this little riff, and then Tommy comes in, and the way he's pushing and pulling, it's like Billy Holiday, like the way he's mm. pushing and pulling these phrases, and he'll pause, and then he rushes back in, and, and there's something really raw about his tone, and yet there's something really delicate about the way his ornamentation of phrasing, and literally like... My entire conception of music was changed by the first twenty-five seconds of this tune. How old were you? Thir- Fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, 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 fifteen, maybe. And and I, I basically memorized the whole record. But I especially it was just like the first minute of this track. I learned everything about he how he attacked and approached the melody. And I would say that even as a singer, like that moment was still a fundamental moment for me in music yeah. because and also because of the way that he conveyed total freedom, without actually you know cuz there are fiddlers who are like solo and they'll you know on the changes and they'll, they'll go way far from the tune it's fine but but Tommy conveyed like a million times more intensity weirdness mystery and invention without actually varying from the melody you know just mm-hmm. through his phrasing purely through phrasing and this compression of time and 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 that was like a life-changing moment so so that was that was like the depth the most intense experience moment of my time studying irish fiddle tunes and I was very self-conscious about getting into old-time stuff because I didn't want to do it fake or whatever. Like I, you know, it felt had to feel real or something. And my gateway into Appalachian music and folk music then came through free jazz because the local CD store in Brattleboro. Oh no, I know what it was. I'm Uh, I'm just going. Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll have. No, no, this is good. This is good. So, but
0: I I, I go. (laughs) So.
1: Here's what it was. I was 13 years old. I'd only listened to folk music as a kid, right? So I, if I listened to rock music, it didn't make any sense to me. Like I bought like a Talking Heads record. Did
0: you listen to any classical music?
1: Not that much. I so played you avoided it a bit. That no, no I played it a bit, learning it. Okay. Like I would take. Some, I took lessons and I played in string quartet. Or did you have
0: any awareness? It that... was
1: never really. It never has, you know, grabbed me in that same way.
0: But you did. You was there any distinction in your mind of like, oh, I don't play violin, I play fiddle?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I took violin lessons so that I wouldn't mess myself up technique wise right. to a point. But yeah, I, I thought of myself entirely as. All right, So you player. go
0: back to that record store.
1: So no, here's all rewind just a teen bit which is that. So as of age like twelve, you know, all my friends were listening to all these different kinds of stuff, right? And if I heard it, it just didn't like. I bought like a Jimi Hendrix record, it just sounded like white noise, and really? Be- Beatles sounded like children's music. I was like, this yeah. isn't. This sounds like weird music. I would listen to when I was five. Like why would I listen to this now? I didn't get it at all. Dylan's, I just I couldn't stand Bob Dylan. Yeah. It just sounded super rough and dumb and I don't know why I didn't get it and and and, and a lot of stuff to us I couldn't even hear like my dad gave me that bitches brew record. and I just couldn't even hear it It just sounded like empty and even talking heads. I was like, I can't hear the music I can hear the singer, but I can't hear the. It was like I was so deep into this one form of like fiddle tunes All of my listening was around that so I was in Vermont. This is 1994 93 94 95 mm-hmm fish right this is the music of the time i'm just going there i'm being honest i'm being honest with you yeah and 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 that was my gateway into other music initially because it was so silly and in even in retrospect things i don't like about it like the gimmickiness of it they were they kind of it brought me in and because also because the lyrics were so patently silly yeah and and absurdist that i knew i wasn't missing anything like if i listened to other pop music i would just feel like i was missing stuff because i couldn't really understand i couldn't really pay attention to lyrics and i couldn't really hear and um I mean, whatever. I love. But Nirvana, the guys in Fish but, are
0: like real musicians. Like, yeah, yeah, get on stage totally. And, and, they, and they, yeah, and there's they like it's improvisation, and
1: yeah. and there's and but it's it's <clears throat> it has this sort of silliness, which is like there's little jokes, musical jokes. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. It's gentle, and and it was silly and gentle in this way that wasn't intimidating to me. Like, I didn't want to feel like I was some fake kid trying to listen to some real music when I'm just like a dorky folk person. I didn't. Yeah. And so they allowed me to be the like dorky folk kid sure. and still listen to this. thing. That's great. Right? So that was step one. Then. Trey Anastasio made "Surrender to the Air." Do you know about this album? Mm-hmm. So, so I read on like the internet that he had a free jazz album called "Surrender to the Air." And, <clears throat> I'd never heard the term. I thought that sounds like an interesting term. And he made this album with like all the money they made. He they there's it's it's like he I think they did it. it it's like a r- really nice studio, like it's like Electric Lady or something. And he had this big budget, right? And it's Rebo, John Modeski, Michael Ray, Marshall Allen. What? Uh, the two guys from um the bass player from the almond the um O-tail Burridge I don't know and they Kofi are. Burridge they're like jam band uh-huh. musicians <clears throat> and um and and like a local like Bob Gulati is like maybe like a northeast Boston improviser and made just like a, they just played like totally free and they made like a tribute to Ornette like they just made like a free jazz album And that I don't I don't know if anybody heard it in this world like but I but you know fish fans bought it because they were like would buy anything and and Reba and Medeski
0: they've definitely dipped into that jam world in their own
1: yeah but I think it was even before Medeski Martin and Wood maybe okay. they'd made one record but it was before that phenomenon like right. completely like right. ma- they made like, they'd made like two records yeah. but they were still they weren't like <clears throat> they didn't and, burn up and and it had and the booklet had all these like beautiful black and white portraits of like Mark Rebo looking like a badass and, yeah, yeah. and, and like and 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 Marshall Allen wearing a sun, or no Michael Ray wearing a Sun Ra t-shirt so that album truly changed my listening again <laughs> because then i went to the cd store and i bought like shrek and i bought a Madison Martinwood record and i bought a sun wa- Heliocentric Worlds of Sun Raid. Did you
0: buy Yo I Killed Your God?
1: No, that wasn't out yet. Okay. It was the original Shrek record. Maybe Relus Cosmopolitans. And and um and then I bought uh Heliocentric Worlds of Sun Ra. And then I asked the guy at the store, I said, What is this music? Oh no, and, and there was an album called Free Jazz by Ornette Coleman, Which, so I yeah, yeah. had it on the title, so I bought that. And and I and then I and then I heard about Max Roach. Somebody told me who Max Roach was. So I they had the only Max Roach album they had was one in two, two and one by Anthony Braxton and Max Roach <laughs> duo. So I was like, oh, I'll buy this. <clears throat> Which also so you loaded a, up. I bought all those records over the course of like maybe a month. That's and amazing. That was like a life changing moment. And at first, I literally thought it was a joke. I was like, oh, this is funny. People play like bad as a joke. I thought it was almost like it's, and then I started to listen and realize that it wasn't of course a joke at all. And It was really, really beautiful music and really inspiring. And, um, but that, but then that ended up being my gateway back into the Appalachian music that had sort of been in the background as a child through my folks, but that I wasn't really into consciously because, because when I then went to listen to field recordings of Alan Lomax and Doc Boggs and, and stuff, the intent, the rawness of the fiddle style of the mountain of Kentucky music in North Carolina, and Tommy Gerald, who's this fiddle player, I made sense to me after hearing Albert Eiler. Uh, yeah, you know, totally. It, it was like, oh no, this is a thing. They're called this is a, the sound that is meaningful to these it's people. Bleeding. It's it's hurts. It hurts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And Roscoe Holcomb, the singer, and Doc Boggs, and Almeida Riddle, who's another ballad singer, and the the rawness of their
0: voices made sense to me. You know, it always drove me crazy. You know, I grew up. Um, you can actually see it right there. There's this tattered copy Of the writings and drawings Of Bob Dylan uh, My mom My dad really were Big Dylan fans I fucking hated that shit And it yeah. took me It wasn't until I was like In my 20s That I began to appreciate it Yeah but, you know, there's always that stupid thing that people say, well, Bob Dylan can't really sing, Bob Dylan can't really sing, which is such a load of idiocy. Oh, of course, yeah. Because how are you supposed to... Oh, he's I, a master singer. He's the yeah. best. Yeah. yeah, he's incredible. He's, I mean, yeah. he, he takes words and yeah. the sound of his voice yeah. and has... Well, he's, he's also
1: so versatile. Like, the idea that he could... No, it's ridiculous. Right. But it's ridiculous.
0: but how are you supposed to sing that shit? Yeah. How are you supposed to sing about, uh, you know, a trip down Suicide Road? Yeah. Are yeah. you supposed to croon that? Totally. Exactly. You know? But no, it's Um so you began to understand that these weren't imperfections; these imperfections yeah, this were actually was nuanced. part of their
1: life, and it was their the way they sounded, and it was just that they were finding their own sound. And miraculously, my local public library had der- in the book "Improvisation" by Derek Bailey. it's right over there, uh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and they, and again, like, and I had a record of his from, from the seventies, and and so you know, and that was so that was like reading something that you'd been feeling but hadn't been thinking because I really, you know, because I was. Because for me, that, those fiddlers that I was listening to, these are the best musicians in the world to me. And, you know, they were very limited in certain technical respects. Sure. Most of them probably could not play in third position, you know, whatever. Or sight-read. So yeah, or, yeah uh, absolutely. I mean, some of them actually could, but, you know, but yeah, definitely within. And, um, and But but I knew that these guys were my master musicians. And that book, Improvisation,
0: really helped elucidate what, why that would have... How was, old were you, you when you read that book? Again, maybe 15, 16 or something. I was surprised. I, read, I was like 22 when I read that book, and I was kind of shocked... At how dry and like straightforward exactly. and academic. That's it is. what was
1: cool about it. Is yeah. it was so it was very plain and it wasn't polemical at all. But it will, but it is pushing a certain idea of like through the instrument as opposed to trying to like make the instrument you know sub, like submit it to this tone you want, ideal tone. Totally, totally. You know, he's going. He's talking about just finding what's in the instrument, right? And, and so much of the <laughs> fiddle players to me were doing that. And 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 I you know I had already appreciated that through the Irish fiddle players.
0: So growing up, <clears throat> improvisation was encouraged.
1: Well. Um My dad always improvised on the piano he has this he loves Bartok, and he kind of does this yeah. Bartokish like improv thing and he would and he make up songs, but he also does improv but i wouldn 't like no i didn 't know what that was in terms of pure improv I just you know but improvisation in terms of what I was saying about the fiddle tune yeah. style of just like you know playing the tunes the tune if you play the tunes for long enough and back going back to the the band I have with Thomas, the contradance band contradancing it you it's a four hour long gig and they teacher teaches the caller teaches the dance to the people which takes about four minutes and then you play for 15 minutes they or 12 to 15 minutes is how long a dance goes and so you're playing a lot for the whole night and it has to be danceable right it has to be in that you know that rhythm it has to feel good to the dancers but beyond that they're not listening to you they're dancing with each other mm. so it's incredibly free Mm-hmm. As beyond that like though there is ro- tons of room for improvisation maybe more on thomas's side than mine in terms of our band but yeah in terms of the arrangements and the tunes did there's you tons enjoy, of room for did you improvising. Enjoy... it wasn't like you know right. jazz improvising but you know just like melodic improvisation and and but within this da- and so it was a very deep uh, musical education for us
0: well you're serving a moment that's not about you exactly yeah
1: and and you're just all but but you're focusing just it's all about rhythm and the the and and then beyond that you're kind of on your own so you have this freedom to mess around with each other on stage in a way that the audience the dancers are i'm sure are in tune to but mm-hmm. in, in a different way fuck and so I forget why that was relevant to what we were talking about, but, but you know, it was a big part of that yeah. moment. And, and, and oh yeah, talking about improvisation. So it, it wasn't improvisation in the sense of soloing, but it, wasn't, it was improvisation in the sense of group shaping of a moment. And allowing music know. to breathe. Yeah, exactly. And building and over time and breaking it down and all that, you know, just that communication. And, and they'd be adding weird substitutions. And I would respond playing-wise over, you know, whatever they were doing harmonically, even if it was just in like an ornament.
0: Did you like, hear that Albert Eiler record, Live in Greenwich Village, during this time?
1: yes i bought it for my birthday when i turned 17 at the cd store and nobody i was home alone that day like my parents were i I had like a show they would do these school jobs for like three days and my brother and i would chill at the house and um and uh i i did i bought that record and and again like albert and and yeah it it was blew my mind you know it was mind blowing
0: it's not michael white playing violin is it oh yeah
1: i love the violin playing i think he's french
0: Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Uh, oh, it's Michelle Sampson. That's right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, is he on any other records? I've never.
0: I've googled him before, and I it's like I'm sure he's on shit and just not credited, Michelle Sampson. Yeah. Um, and there's a video of them. Like, did you see that documentary? Um, My name is Albert Eiler.
1: It was incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a video of them playing.
1: That's right. I and I really that. wish
0: that footage. I remember that now. I get so frustrated with like. I don't know if this is like exacerbated by the fact that everything is online now, but there are certain artists that there's like very little video footage of. Yeah.
1: But it's in that movie.
0: It's in that movie, but you can't get it like separate from the movie. And yeah. the movie's not for sale anywhere. I went to go see that I know. when it came out in Anthology Film Archives and Me too, yeah. Completely blown away. The lights came up and I turned around and Henry Grimes was sitting right behind me. Amazing. Totally. That's amazing. Me
1: out. Yeah, that was so
0: powerful. I mean,
1: Eiler... And yeah, by that point, you're just looking for all of it, you know, as a yeah. kid, you're just, and, and, um, and there was something else. Oh, yeah. And another huge thing, which was like another CD store impulse buy was the uh, early minimalism by Tony Conrad, the box set. Yeah. And, and the first CD of that is the four violins, which is from the 60s. And again, like, I was like, this is kentucky music this is drone you heard it that yeah way. and i didn't hear henry flint till later who made that connection more explicit henry but flint. but but tony conrad was the one you know in terms of the, the intonation and the raw sound of the fiddle and letting that sing and that was connected so much to shape note music and old time so music tony's shit
0: clicked with you immediately I
1: inc- like I, I blasted that record like all day did you ever get to know him no i wish i had i i had a couple email exchanges and yeah I went up and asked him for lessons after a show he played. How did once. that go? He he was like, "Oh, lessons." I mean, it's not like I can get a cassette of, you know, learn to play Hawaiian slack-key guitar. He went on this whole oh, <laughs> amazing speech to me, and then he told me that some he went, it was amazing, like classic tonic, and then he told me to just play one note for a long time until it sounded good to me. I was, just, I was basically That's that funny. He
0: told me one time I have I had like two very strange interactions with him, and I was uh, I was playing a gig at um paris london west nile one night and i was warming up my bass clarinet which i could barely fucking play and he's like oh i love the bass clarinet and uh and i was like yeah man I too bad i can't play more than one note on it <laughs> i didn't even think about it as i said it <laughs> and, he, and he's like well you only need one note as long as it's the right note that's perfect
1: yeah yeah the first time i saw him it was um he he put a contact mic inside his mouth and shaved with an electric razor it was beautiful was at New York. It was at the Knitting Factory, yeah, right. with Paulina Livleros and Morton Subotnick.
0: <clears throat> well, later. I mean, I don't want to
1: jump ahead, but I, oh, the... so so, go, so wait, we'll take a full circle, yeah, you're yeah. jumping a little bit ahead, but not too far. So Aaron Siegel, you're asking how I knew yeah, Aaron. Yeah, so yeah. and I mentioned Jake and Zach, Jake Danziger and Zach Wall. So what happened is, so all these teenage years, right? I'm here. I'm buying all these free jazz CDs. Were you
0: coming into New York at all as a teenager? No,
1: I never saw any music live. Okay. other than folk music, even as a teenager, I could have gone to Northampton. I mean, people right. would come to Northampton. I just I maybe. No, I didn't see any of it. It was only even pop music and stuff like Yola Tango, I loved, and again, like I'm sure they came and played. But in it just Hampton, existed in outer space. I didn't know get... how to look it up. I just had it all at my house, and I didn't even know that many other people. Like Thomas was into all the in all like Yola Tango, and he was into he was into like more like. Um, the ECM kind of stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was into folk music with me, but he wasn't into the free jazz. So we sort of like, and he was really into classical music, deeply, deeply. So that was like his was thing was classical playing, yeah, like yeah. F- tw- you know practicing all the day and long and playing seriously. And so he was deeply into classical music, and I was into all the free jazz. That was like our separate thing, and then shared we were into folk music and more of whatever different. Did kinds you guys
0: of- grow up with Nico Muley too? No, no, we okay. didn't-
1: met him later. He was he did, from, from We met him okay. in college. So what? Ha- but so the- I'd never met any other people who knew about this stuff it was just like me going to the cd store alone and then listening to it at my Receiving house these
0: transmissions from outer space yeah yeah
1: and my friend gabriel and i kind of got in together but we didn't know anybody else and 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 there was this incredible gulf between my playing and my listening because my playing was like exclusively fiddle tunes and then listening i was like a teenager just trying to f- listen to anything i could and obsessed with hendrickson and miles davis and all that yeah, stuff yeah. So, and john coltrane and everything and um and so when I went to co- so Thomas went to college and in his just for a year and and in his his only year there which was his freshman year he room his roommate was Jacob Danziger okay and Jacob Danziger and I was taking a year off and I was living in Vermont but also spending time in Boston and <clears throat> Jacob Danziger's best friend was Zach Wallace who was at NEC in 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 Boston and so the Jake and Zach were like the first human beings that I found to Thomas and I and that I found who like. Knew who Albert Eiler was and listened to all this stuff. Yeah, and they they knew way more than I did, and they had been involved. Like Jake was, I mean, Zach was doing you know free improv like with Greg Kelly and Okyoung Lee and all these people in in, you know at NEC and in in Boston, and so that was like such a life changing moment because they. They they were just these people who knew all that stuff and came from Ann Arbor where all those kids were into all that stuff and yeah they you know Matt Bowder and Aaron and
0: Colin Stetson and, yeah exactly and like Andrew that w- w- K- and Wolf yeah, Eyes yeah
1: <laughs> Jake had we had the zine that Jake and Angela W.K. had made as teenagers that was like we had like a hundred copies like it's lying so around our wild. house way before you know, his crazy thing and um so they were very life changing because a they taught me about a million things millions of people that i didn't know yet you know that are on all these walls and and all the downtown stuff and and um and arto Lindsay and no wave music and i mean they just like and and then we'd go to tonic like five times a week and just see oh. everything and and they also were important because they had this aesthetic sense that i think has broadened they gave us nick drake they were like they gave everybody nick drake cd for christmas one year and 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 um, you know I'd never heard of that music Drake. at all. Yeah, I must like, like
0: hit you uh, like a ton of birds. Completely,
1: just Pink Moon, only Pink Moon. Listen to it like a hundred times that day. Right, and you know that. So they and and they were also the ones who were like, because in Vermont there was sort of like this whole aesthetic thing that was based around the people who were sort of like from being into the dead, where everybody listened to like reggae, but like Neil Young was bad. Like reggae was good, but Neil Young was is bad. that like a like he was like sloppy and like a like, white like, guilt kind of thing? I no, it was more like. Sort of, maybe, but it was more like the jam thing. Like they were into like the Medicine Martin and Wood and like funky jamming. Right. But like Neil Young was like this sort of sloppy like that was sounded just we just thought that was terrible. And everybody in Vermont, like not everybody, but like it was just like that was like dumb I don't know. And like like Jake and Zach were the first ones that were like, no, like Neil Young is good. Really and like for and like if somebody else had told me that I wouldn't have really paid attention, but because they were listening to all this deep experimental music. I was like, huh, these guys who love that like him? That's weird. I should take that more seriously. Yeah. yeah. And like and also they taught me about Sashiko M and all the Otomo Yoshihide and that right. you know we'd go see that. And so much music. So they were like hugely life changing. Yeah. And they had this very distinct aesthetic about what they dug and what they didn't and what you know and um and they were less into, you know, traditional jazz and where so they you know which they you know so that was sort of interesting to see them or like people doing that now or whatever they were like confused you know a little bit more high so they were they sort of had this whole aesthetic system they had like a fully developed aesthetic system as listeners and as musicians and um and and i would go and and that was very influential not that i adopted all of it you know there was parts of it that but you know I, i had my own thing but but it was very influential and um and yeah, and so that's how I met, and, and, and Zach had a trio, and still does occasionally, with Matt Bowder and Memorize Aaron Siegel, that was like my favorite that band. That music
0: changed my life. Yeah, totally. Matt Bowder is, <clears throat> I've said this many times, Um, I love that guy so much, and he's my favorite musician in New York, like, by a long shot. I, I can listen to him play all day long, and that band really changed the way I think about yeah. music.
1: We'd go hear them at the Reed Cafe in Williamsburg, Yeah, and... um. And it was always just insanely inspiring. And I yeah. think I had them come to a show in Brattleboro for all my, you know, parent like all my parents' folk friends. And
0: you can't, I mean that that music to me is so much the sound of like three people who are making music based on their specific relationship. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it doesn't sound like anything else.
1: Yeah. Totally. Oh man, I wish they still played. So that was a huge time. They we you know they would play and then again I, I said we'd go to Tonic like five times a weekend. And then I was also playing Irish sessions in New York. And that and then when I finished school then that was my you know, date job was with playing there and I and I love it. You used it, to play I remember running into you and
0: day and you were saying that you were doing these like Sunday sessions at- Yeah.
1: There's one that still goes when the I play whenever I can, but I'm very rarely in town, but it's the, the Brass Monkey on Sunday afternoons, 528, lovely tunes. Eamon O'Leary, master musician, hosts the session. And, um, yeah, there's a whole world in in New York of these great, you know, the Swift Bar also has one, and, and 11th Street on the Upper East, Lower East Side. And, and there are these traditional sessions, and, you know, there's three musicians who are hired to be there. And then if you have a night off, you go and, you know, other people come and, and sit in. and Yeah, it's open. And, and um and they're just beautiful musicians. There's so many great players. And, and, uh, so that was my other, my world was, it was like playing Irish sessions in New York and, um, and then also playing eventually in Doveman with Thomas, which was sort of the easing into that whole indie rock universe. And, um, and, and then going to hear free jazz and trying to play improvised music whenever I could. And with just whoever, and, and then eventually, through that, that through the desire to play improvised music, um, I joined stars like Fleas which was yeah. Shan- Shannon Fields and Montgomery, and then Ryan Sawyer on drums, Ryan Sawyer, and Shelley and Bergen,
0: and a whole vast, Laura
1: Ortman, I think. Yeah, wonderful musicians. Yes, Laura, a whole vast array of just such super yeah. amazing people, and and it was a lot of it was through Thomas. He he was more. I was shyer, I think, when I first came sure. to New York. I didn't have a sense of who I could be as a musician around this world. I knew as a listener that I loved all this stuff, but I wanted to play, but I didn't really know what I could bring. Well, because
0: I remember... So it, stars it, like please was important as well. It must have been like two thousand five or two thousand six. My friend Matt Welch, you know, we were the door guys yes, at the Stone. Yes, and he. Te- I remember him telling me like uh, it was during Avon Kang he had booked the Stone. Yes, and he's like, yeah, there was this guy Sam. He he had a tape recorder and he walked in and out and he was laying down on the. He told me this like really. I was like, that sounds really peculiar. <laughs> I did a thing. Cause yeah, I just
1: wanted to interact with this world of my own in my own way that was real to me and not yeah. be sort of pretending. And so I did a thing of like with a tape recorder of self-inflicted field recordings. And <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? That's what, And I was a and, and I had this tape recorder and I would just carry it around and talk into it or yeah. dance and re- have it be recorded or play some scratchy like I'd play an old-time fiddle tune but I'd just get into the scratchy ending and just like repeat that and and um I still do that as a as a piece sometimes. It's gotten more musical a bit, but um. <laughs> And But yeah, Avon had me at the Stone, and it's just like the thing of youth, like <clears throat> the fearlessness of, I mean, I was utterly terrified before those, that show, but yeah. but I did it, you know, and yeah. I don't know, when you're younger, you will just do stuff like that, and you know that you need to do it, even if your body is like having a complete anxiety attack <laughs> before, and I was on stage, and yeah, just like yelling, and, well, do you, and the audience, an audience, I think, was basically Avon, Jessica, Shazad. you know, gave me some pretty nice good audience. things. You know, it was a deep listener, it was all yeah, of them. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I once played a concert for three people. And the three people that I played for, it was the dumb. it was the strangest thing. I decided to play a solo concert of keyboard improvisations. I was 20. That's awesome. 19 or 20 in Athens, Georgia. And the concert was one of the worst musical expressions I've ever made. <laughs> the audience was three people. It was a midnight show. And it was Michael Stipe. Mike Mills <laughs> and their manager, Burtis Downs. That's so great. <laughs> I love it. And whenever I think back, I like, that's private like a, audience. It's like a dream. Like, yeah, yeah. Not a good dream. Like yeah. A peculiar dream. That's fantastic. Well, how did you come across or how did you meet Avend?
1: Um, it through Shazad. So, yeah. it really, Thomas is sort of the original crux of so many connections and, and friendships and musical things in New York. And then the next one, Nico, was also very important a little bit later. But so, Thomas was much, as I said, he was much more better at sort of putting himself into the world. And um, he played in Chocolate Genius. Yeah. And uh, which we love, you know, Mark Anthony Thompson, which is an incredible group. And they were playing a, a lot at Joe's Pub at the time. And then through that, he met Oren Blowdow. Yes. And then he was playing in Elysian Fields. And. Um, Oren was a really big person for us. Oh, and a huge person that I should have even said at the beginning of this one with Thomas. So, so Thomas played with a ch- uh, chocolate genius gig and at the chocolate genius show, Dougie Baum was playing the drums great. and he was like, Oh my God, Dougie Bowne, you're on like five of my favorite records. Cause we, we worshiped Arda Lindsay, Chris Whitley and Chris Whitley and Rebo and yeah. Dougie was on all those records. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and then, of course, he wasn't on them because he had his whole situ- his accident and everything. And so we we noticed it, we, you know, we, and 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 because we read all the liner notes, you know. And so Thomas was like, "Oh my God, Dougie Bound, you know. And he Dougie became a very, very, very close friend of ours, and very much a a kind of he was like the f- figure who sort of welcomed us into this world of New York again. And somebody else like Jake and Zach, and who who just you know. Ha- just knew so much and knew all these people and we would just be at the Pink Pony and we would just talk about music. And again, it was like somebody to talk to about all this stuff that you had in your mind in Vermont for all this time. Yeah. And, and he wasn't like talking
0: down to you or anything? No, not like, at all. He yeah. was
1: just, he was psyched to just talk, and, you know, just such an amazing storyteller for he's, all of his time with Iggy Pop and, you know, lizards, the lizards yeah. and... He's an oracle. Yeah, he is. You know, he's the griot. I mean, I think Rebo calls him the griot of New Jersey. And he, so I would... I think I wrote a college paper, like I was doing like a nonfiction essay class, and I wrote like a, a profile of Dougie, and a, so that just gave me an excuse basically to hang out with him. And then he played drums in Dove Man uh-huh. and Thomas. So he was at that ga- so at that first Charlie Genius show, Thomas met Dougie and Oren, who were both you know huge people for us. And 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 um and through Oren, he played in the Legion Fields, and then Shazad was the bass player for Legion Fields. I didn't realize Shazad played in the Legion. They did a European tour of Thomas Shazad. And Shazad was the bassist. And it was one of his first gigs, I think, when he was starting to play around New York. Yeah. And um so then we met Shazad, and Shazad played with Dove Man and Dougie. The band was Dougie, Shazad, Thomas and me, and a trumpet player named Peter Eklund. And um who was a swing cornet player, uh-huh. very, very beautiful musician, who we knew from our folk days. He'd been a he'd been come to the dance to play in the swing bands. And um so and so yeah then shazad i met shazad and that was again like a huge musical universe is
0: beyond vast
1: yeah and we traded uh traded banjo lessons for guitar lessons and then we would improvise at the end and he was somebody who was just such a generous person to improvise with because he's very non-judgmental and i was you know and um and very open and he would come up with little games things ways for us to you know just uh, just not for a listening audience just for our own sure sure as a learning thing for me yeah and um and then yeah, we've had so many travels, and and he's played on like all, basically almost all my records except yeah, for the first yeah, yeah, two. Yeah. After the first two, yeah, he's so that was then yeah, and and so those were the that was the spectrum of people at that point it was Dougie Shazad Thomas Nico. A bit later, stars like Fleece. That's a really good crew. It was a wonderful moment in New York. Yeah, when would so this would have been like the early two thousand, and, and, and then playing Irish sessions, early to mid like two thousand and five. That that this stuff is like two thousand and five, yeah. two thousand and six. And um and I took a yeah, I worked as a typer typist transcribing interviews. So I typed quite that, fast. That was your day job? Yeah. For for two years. For what company? Uh I they were like a third party company. So you could get in it might be twenty twenty interviews or you know, or a documentary or reality TV. It's just type, type, type. And um And I loved it because it was all these weird interviews with people. You know, you'd have like three days of when James Brown died. I'd transcribe like three days of the musicians. You know, his musicians, and it was much better than the final product because it was their unfiltered. It was just. It was like this. It was them just like talking for an hour, really openly, and then they'd use like one sentence for the news piece that night. Right. I'd do that like twenty hours a week, and I played sessions, the Irish sessions, and then. And then I just tr- tried to play as much as I could, whatever, you know, Stars Like Fleas and get together and improvise with Ryan or whatever, Ryan Sawyer or... Ryan Sawyer's you know, a fucking genius. He's a profound musician as well, the, the lone wolf and cub. And... um <laughs> And it was just a great time, yeah. Playing all those stars like Flea's show, I was so wonderful that they. Uh, I felt so thankful that you know Shannon welcomed me into that group because that like was Fleas like a Play a dream. outside in New York
0: very much. Basically,
1: almost never. I think there was one tour after after my time with them, but no, we would just play like in the Todd P. Show's way out in right. Bushwick or, or whatever, like Monkey Town or something. Yeah, yeah, because that was Montgomery, who was a singer. That was his, yeah his place, and yeah, and then I met Colin through Matt. And Colin Stetson. He, he would have me do Mon- play Monkey Town once in a while. <laughs> And, uh, so it was just that wonderful time. That was my time being in New York, you know, right. That was my time of living in New York. were so it, so it was you were super, here from... super wonderful and exciting. Well, I went to college north of here. Where'd so you was, go? Uh, Sarah Lawrence. So uh... I was there from 2000 to 2004. Okay. And then I lived in New York from like 2005, 2009. And you went from New York to LA? No. Then I met my wife, Beth, and I moved to London and we lived in London and we just lived in LA for like a year and a half. Right. Where she was working on a record. And, um, and we mostly, I've mostly been in London for the last
0: eight years. How do you like it over there? It's
1: cool. It's yeah. different. I, at first, when I came from New York to London, it was very difficult because I was sort of trying to make it into New York, and it's just different. Yeah. And it's much more segregated by genre i find in london really i shouldn't say this on the record maybe people will get mad at me no no, but, no um, i'm fascinated but, me, <laughs> but, like,
0: even a place like cafe auto or something
1: no no cafe auto is an outlier right but, but even there there's you know no the i love cafe auto and i lived a few minutes walk from there so i would go that's pretty you know great. Ardo, and, and I, I, there was a period where i would sort of forget and i'd remember to check and each day it was somebody who had been incredibly important to me earlier on so yeah, one yeah, day yeah. it was sashiko m and one day it was arthur doyle and I hadn't seen either of them play for like six years. How did Arthur and Sound? He sounded incredible. Yeah. He, it was not long before he died. And he was mostly singing jazz standards. Oh, but, you know, without his, with no teeth, it just you thought it was somebody. I thought, oh, he's just doing some vocal improv techniques. And then I was like, oh, no, it's summertime. <laughs> it was so deep. It was one of the most beautiful concerts I've ever been to. I would love to hear a recording of that. I know. It was very, 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 There's very. There's something, I, I talked his, about this. With the him. songwriter album remains like a... A touchstone.
0: Yeah. There's something about especially like, you know, if you're if one, going back to that thing you said about hearing these uh Appalachian musicians and you could hear this struggle, you could hear this this trouble in their in their music. But when you really love an artist and you follow their work and you can hear them towards the end, it can be heartbreaking. It can be largely heartbreaking. <laughs> um But it's really pretty special like those johnny yeah. cash records before he died Yeah, yeah, yeah totally uh right. the chet anything you can hear of chet baker of from the course. 80s
1: yeah absolutely like are they i at, love the silence one that charlie hayden no, right a like are they hard. at their They're most agile no
0: yeah. are they at the most virtuosic no yeah. but it's really compelling yeah. to hear how people deal with their yeah. their frailty their absolutely. decay um i would nothing would man, did you hear that Derek bailey record uh the carpal, ball- oh, no. carpal, carpal tunnel no i haven't heard that it's might be the last recording he made before he died i know the ballads one that shit's but,
1: incredible. Yeah, I gotta check out carpal
0: tunnel. Carpal tunnel. It's literally him seeing somebody just at the end, and yeah, or like when deep. Bowie died, like that. That to me, yeah. one of the first thoughts I had is like, oh, cool. It's now it's a full yeah. picture that you could sort of put together, and
1: yeah, it was know. interesting. Yeah, the, his uh, Arthur Doyle also seeing the electroacoustic ensemble, yeah, was pretty amazing. And then, and around 2004, I saw just a solo set of his that was like 20 minutes long, where he. Played the saxophone, recorder, sang, talked, and it was it, it was twenty minutes. And I I felt like I was watching like the entire history of America in right. twenty minutes. I was like I'm seeing like Alan Lomax uh, field recording stuff, like you know free jazz, you know like you know uh, somebody who's just like a street preacher person, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. like you were seeing every uh, uh, so much. It was it was definitely uh, probably the best a show of all, one of the most memorable of that entire time of going to see concerts.
0: So, I I feel like I get a feeling from, I I like your records a lot, and I've spent, I I don't know all of them, but I've got three or four, and I've I've come back to them quite a lot, and I feel like the records do a really good job of sort of going one step further and realizing the full sound, and those records Mm. have a vibe to them, Mm. and it feels very intentional to me, it feels like a part of the statement of the music itself
1: thank you yeah they've all been very i mean they are autobiographical in a certain sense of like just trying to kind of yeah they've all each one has been a, a, another step in that way and 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 part of the reason i did not do folk songs on the most recent album was because i knew that if i tried at that moment it would be for i'd be forcing it and it would be a gimmick and because right, the new record
0: I, there's no it's
1: not based on folk songs yeah and it's, I wrote, it's original music or whatever and the earlier albums you know the, some of the music around the melodies is original but the, or much of it but, but the melodies themselves and the, and the lyrics are all folk songs and, and I, it was very I kept on planning to not do it but then when it came to the day I actually I was like oh no, to I, not do it? to not do a folk songs record right, each right. time yeah, like, yeah. I, I saw, this is the last one I'll do this last one I won't do the other one and then I would come to the time and I would sort of realize I'd, I had gathered the material almost without trying and that's what it wanted, wanted to be and that it could be a platform still and then this one I said I won't do it and and I didn't (laughs) but there's I mean do you feel yeah in terms of the people I've had play on the records and in terms of the musical world of the albums and you know they've very much been just a record of what is going on (laughs) well
0: Well, I mean Milford's on the new one right yes were you in the studio with Milford oh
1: hell yeah of course is he on the whole record he's um, the last 12 minutes basically um, we did a we did two hours a few hours where we play we just improvised and then, Just you and Milford? No, it was quartet with Shazad and a really wonderful young saxophone player named Sam Gandel. Okay. Sam Gandel. he's from the West Coast, and um, on alto saxophone. And uh, so the last twelve minutes is is the last twelve minutes of this sheer improv space. And then um, he is on a couple other tracks, and and um, where where I added some stuff and we kind of shaped songs in a little in a bit in, in a way. Yeah. Um, and then the last tw- and and then the earlier mo- and then that yeah so he's on sort of like 3 or 4 and but the last one is like 11 minutes long so it's it's a yeah, prof- yeah. and that was a very profound
0: experience i mean i him. hope you savored every second oh, of oh my
1: god it was i mean in a way i just did it partially just to give the experience of you know being yeah. in the same room and seeing what would happen give the gift it was of terrifying Graves. Yes, yeah. and um but he he went, came to it and he was into it and and um and he did the show we played in union pool in June, and that he was incredibly show? powerful At yeah. union pool, yeah, it was amazing i I played the first it was i sort of did it in the same shape of the album where it was Shazad and Sam and I for the first forty minutes doing the songs and other some other songs as well and then he came on and joined me, and we just did like and I sang a shag song. I, I, cause I always felt like the philosophy of the world is like such an ornette style melody, or, or you know, it's from that time. It's a melody of that time. So I sang uh, the, you know, this first track of the philosophy of the world, and with Milford, and Chaz- and then it grew into a more of improvisation. I was playing, and then, um, and then I came on. We did an encore, and I started. I was like, I'll just play like a folk song, and I started with one of the quieter like folk songs from one of the earlier records, and that was really actually where things opened up in a way that where he started singing. No, No, not playing, just singing like in tongues over the guitar, and then he came in on one of his like the Cuban, like the Afro-Cuban beat, super in with the drum, like of the guitar, perfectly, and um, and then it opened up from there, and eventually it ended with him calling out to the audience, and I was conducting the audience in response Did he pick to you him up over his head no but it was like a deeply cathartic like they were calling to him and he was calling and it was milford it, i mean yeah. he, i saw him double bill with Mata the week after september 11th there was all those benefit concerts a, a, a tonic. A tonic yeah and um he and, picked mike pride up over yeah his head. i was told i always talked to mike pride about that he, <laughs> he he sat him on his shoulders
0: and pride told me the story about that that he was in the audience yeah and that he started milford hear-
1: graves got up and he said if your music is as, is ahead of its time. You have to stay in shape so that you can still play it when people when the world catches up to you. That's and then as, to prove it, he had Mike, Mike, Mike Pride sit on top of him. <laughs> and they played. It was so beautiful.
0: He said, beautiful. No, he said, he said he, uh, uh, Milford started calling out, MP! MP! And so he said he went up on stage and he said, Milford goes, climb! And he put him up over his head. <laughs> I mean, Milford is like, he's one part sage. He's one part, you know, obviously he's like a musician of the highest level. Yes, of course. He's a scientist, but he's also, like, he's a really good entertainer. Absolutely. He gets that's the what audience see. going.
1: No, and that's the thing. And he kind of, that's what kind of came alive in the show. You know, he saw the audience. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I know I what know what to do this. with you. Yeah, and it was like, and he's totally in the moment. I mean, it was completely improvisation. Absolutely. But do you
0: ever have those fucking moments? Like, I was at a, uh, a Christmas party once at Roulette. And I'm sitting here. I'm talking to like you know Jim Thurwell and some other people. We're having some drinks. Da da Jim wasn't. Um, and I look over like my shoulder and I see Christian Wolf talking to uh, you know somebody. And he's like drinking a beer and like looking at his iPhone. And I'm like, that's fucking Christian Wolf. Like, that dude has been here. Like, you know, at the end of The Shining, when yes. the bartender's like, you've always been here? Yes. Like, that guy's been there for it all.
1: Well, that's the thing. And I think that, <clears throat> I mean, we're in this moment where we still have a lot of these people around. Right. I
0: mean, Milford played Coltrane's funeral.
1: I know. It's, I know. With it's, Albert Eilert. Exactly. I mean, this is these are the people. These are the gods among us. And 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 in a way, some of that thing of, like, just calling him up to have him play on the record... That did come from folk music in a way, because the thing about traditional folk music, like in the Irish world, like Tommy Peoples, this dude who I heard yeah. at the age of 15, he is an iconic, he's widely regarded as, you know, one of the top fiddlers of the last 60 years in Irish music, a totally groundbreaking musician. You know, in, he doesn't play anymore because he's, 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 he's not well, but in the 90s, he he had like a weekly session in Listunvarna, Varna in County Clare. And if you went to Ireland... And you went to Claire and you said, where does Tommy play? Oh, he's on Tuesday nights. He's at Listunvarna. Varna. You know, quiet man. Go there. And and you just go to the pub and there he is. And he comes in and plays. And there's like five people drinking and he's playing tunes. And there's like a couple of Yeah. Like, you know, that's how it works in that world. And that's not how it works really. You know, it's not like um, Mick Jagger has a, a weekly blues night in London that you can come sit in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like Tommy Peoples is like this. And you know, it's a smaller world. It's a much smaller world. But still, yeah. like... He's still an icon, and if he gives a concert, it would be like an iconic, you know, and he's like a national treasure in Ireland, but he's playing the weekly session. Mm-hmm. And, and there's not as much of a sense of, and for Thomas and I, when we were kids, like, our absolute heroes, like, literally to us, like, our, you know, equivalent of whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, heroes of that moment, like, whoever, like Brad Meldad, too, like you know, whoever, was yeah. your, if you're like a jazz musician and you're 19, like, like are the, our equivalents were people who lived in our town. They were the local musicians. They were our favorite musicians. And so we became friends with them. We played with them. And, you know, partially it wasn't hard because they were nearby. Partially it wasn't hard because we worked really hard and we got good at that music or whatever. And, you know, so we were... And 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 it, we didn't have as much of a sense of distance of those kinds of people. You know what I mean? And so when we came to... And, and, and so that idea of just, like, seeking out your heroes and just seeing if they'll play you know obviously you can't always do it right it may not happen or whatever but you know it sort of allows it i don't know something about thinking about people like from those generations is just like well they're the older and, and in traditional music there's this sense of like the older masters and who do you learn your music from you know uh-huh. and and in all these other worlds it's different but i you sort of still retain a sense of that it's like well he's he's the old master right now that's who we have right now as an old master yeah. you know <clears throat> and um and what can you learn from them you know and 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 his very very connect, and his music is very folkloric as well you know there's so many tradition percussive traditions happening in his music and also part of why i wanted to have him come and i hope it makes sense to people on the record i don't have i don't care actually if it makes <laughs> sense it makes sense to me yeah. and and you know the for me there was also a deep link of milford's music to the music that i love in terms of folk music which is like you know, his whole belief in, because I went to, Zach took me, Zach Wallace, for example, took, taught, taught me who that you know Milford was and took me to a lecture he gave at Brown in like 2001.
0: Wait, and, Milford taught at Bennington? Yeah, but he
1: gave a lecture at Brown. Right, they, but they did, you, did you have access oh, to no, that No, I world? didn't know that. I didn't know that okay. until much later. All I didn't right. know that much later. And, um, and um, so, you know, Milford's whole thing of, you know, the heartbeat being the true... Percus to time, yeah, and the whole f- idea of his that you know metronomic time is bad for your heart yeah is not good, and that when we 're children, you know we have the right time, like a two year old playing a drum said that is the right time, and we lose that, and we have to get that back, you know all those beliefs of his are um to me, I hear that in Kentucky fiddle playing. Right. You know, there's a guy named Bruce Green, who's sort of the equivalent guru to me for that music, who's a Kentucky fiddle player, or Kentucky, style, who, he's a, he's, he lives in North Carolina, he's from New York, but he, you know, he's, that's his, his music was in the early 70s, traveling around these mountains in Kentucky, and p- learning from these fiddlers like Hiram Stamper that he found nobody else had f- played with these guys for like 30 years, and um, their sense of time is not far from Milford's. You know, right. it is a similar sense of, it's a personal sense of time. And it's, it's not metronomic, but it is real. And it's a deep groove. You know, you feel that it's not random. You know, you feel it. Right. But it's not metronomic. And so for me, having Milford on the record was a nod to that link to Kentucky music and to not you know or to Kentucky as a stand-in for wherever sure 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 you know, but to that folkloric thing of like a felt personal felt time and um whether that comes through or not who you know who knows it does but, but think- that was my that was part of what made it feel I didn't want it to be like I I I really didn't want it to feel like an arbitrary like oh yeah Sam finds a free jazz person and plays free jazz with them. You know what I mean? I didn't want it to feel I wanted it to feel organic and real. Right. You can tell me if you think I passed the test but I got to listen to it. You have to check it out and then yeah. you can tell me. And and um and but I and and I wouldn't have released anything from that day if it didn't you know what I if mean? Was like good music, y- yeah. Or if, if it, it wasn't did- good music, but if it did, if it didn't have a personal reason to exist beyond, sure. you know, I was gonna do it no matter what because <laughs> I wanted to have the experience, and it worked out, and he was up for it, so that was cool. You get the label to hook and it up, so you- <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And he and he, you know, and, and Shazad was, you know, was, yeah. was very close with him, and they've been playing, and so you know, it was through Shazad and that and he tried. I think, and he, you know, he ch- he's like, he's like, I checked you out on YouTube, man. Like, he's like, I, I checked you out. And, and what was beautiful about it was we did the first improv- improvisation and it was pretty, I was, you know, we were sort of, I was nervous and we were, it was very much, you know, just like playing like, you know, in right. that style, just like the free jazz thing and, or whatever you want to call it, but you know, the free improv and just playing. And he came out and he's like, you know, I checked you out on YouTube, you know, like you don't have to just play my thing. Like I'll play anything, man. You play your music, you know, do what's your, and so I was like, okay. And so I came in with like, this like quiet dad, gad riff and boom, he just like jumped in there and, and. But, you know, he was saying, like, we can be here playing, you know, you right. can be here as yourself. And almost Milford's thing is, like, he's such an intense, you know, the way he, you know, he has, he kind of talks. He, it's like a Muhammad Ali thing as well. Like, he sort of, you know, he has this, and he's very critical of a lot of stuff. But in a way, he's, like, critical of so much stuff in that moment when he came in that it's like, well, I just have to be myself, right? Because I, if I try to do something, who knows what will happen? You know what I mean? Right. But it, actually, he's deeply open-minded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Profoundly. And so he was really up for anything. And... um and it was very special. And so I did feel like at the end that we got to a point that I was like, I think we are speaking together in a oh. meaningful way that I can put this on the record because it's not just like uh, uh, contrived. And I, you know, and that was, you're, you, you don't want things to be contrived. And same with even the Frizzell, like I waited, you know, I had, we had made our musical connection a few years earlier. He's the I, sweetest man. Well, of course, as you know, I've, I've listened to yeah, the yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. you did with him. It's yeah. beautiful. And um And yeah, he's the nicest dude, but, you know, I waited until I was ready to, I felt like there was a reason, that I was ready to have him come play on the record, that I wasn't, that, you know, that felt comfortable to be in the room, that I knew him a bit better and not have it, you know what I mean, to not have it feel like arbitrary.
0: I had a moment with him the other night. Uh, I played a, did you go see him play last night? No, I fucked up. I've been really busy, but I I played a duo show maybe like a week or two ago. You know the drummer Brian Chase? Yes. Brian and I were playing, and it was a small place in Brooklyn, um, we get done playing. I look out, The first person I see is Frizell. Comes running over to me and gives me a hug. He goes, "How uh, do you do those things on the clarinet?" It's so un- It was just one of those man. moments. Like I stopped, I breathed it in, and I was yes. like, "I've got that now." Yes. Like Frizell totally. ran up to me after the gig, yeah. hugged me, and complimented yeah. me. It's it's it's, and it's tiny little. He thing. wouldn't
1: do it if it wasn't real. No, I mean, it's I, totally like, real. Yeah. I, I I I savor those moments. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. And and so. It's just that whole thing of trying to fig- make something happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you have to get to your session? I will in about five minutes. Okay. Well, we, we can... should wrap it up. Um, I'm glad you came over. It's a yeah. long time. I, I was always bummed that like, the, the, when we tried doing that interview yeah, in LA, was doing nuts. like, was it four <laughs> years ago? <laughs> that was like one of three interviews that never made yeah, its way into yeah. happening. I'm glad we did it for real. I am too. I use, and you're not in New York for much longer than today.
1: No, no, I pass through only. I come, all, I've come frequently, but only yeah. from. What's
0: the session you're going to do now? Can um, you talk about? It? N- not here. No? Okay, that, all right. I'll tell you after. Yeah. All right, all right.
1: Thanks, um, Sam. Yeah, cheers, dude. Right Thanks, on. Jeremiah.
0: Okay, that was Sam Amadon. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Um, I was really happy that that finally got to happen, and. You know, I, I can't give Sam uh, uh, any higher of an, in, of, of, of an endorsement, you know? Check it out. It's great music. It's coming from the right place. It's coming from the heart. It's coming from the intellect. It's coming from, from a place of wanting to put things together that maybe weren't put together before. And, and once you put them together, they're in a very pleasing way. com. That's where you can find out more about him. And, and just do it. Check it out. Don't be stupid. Check out some good shit. That's it. I uh, hope you guys are cool. We're going to be back next week. Next week's an interesting one. Next week is one that you know might uh, surprise and confuse a couple of people. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Uh, check out the 5049 website. Go to the Patreon. Maybe throw in a few bucks. That shit helps. It's patreon.com slash 5049podcast. And that's it. Be excellent to each other. Bye.
1: Oh uh-huh.